Hi, my name is Father Bo Reynolds, and I'm an associate priest and school chaplain here at the Church of St. Luke in the Fields. Hi, I'm Lani Steinberg, and I'm the archivist here at St. Luke's. On behalf of the clergy, staff, parish, and the greater community of St. Luke's, we'd like to welcome you to In the Field, the first in a series of podcasts celebrating the almost 200 years of St. Luke's history here in the West Village of New York City. As you know, Father Bo, St. Luke's occupies a singular place, both physically and sociologically, in the hearts, the minds, and the faith of its community. A spiritual hub of Anglo-Catholic worship and the third oldest Episcopal church on the island of Manhattan, its history mirrors the evolution of the city and, most specifically, the very unique lives and times of the Greenwich Village locale. In 1820, the village was literally comprised of fields that ran down to the shoreline, with access from uptown by sailboat along the river, or a drive over Broadway through the woods by land to the country road that was Hudson Street. It was the summer home of the city people, merchants, marketmen, and their families, and for others, a respite from the frequent outbreaks of yellow fever that plagued the city. There were few buildings and a really, really tiny permanent population when on October 20th, 1820, a remarkable woman named Catherine Ritter, a widow with seven children, convened a small meeting at her home on West 4th and Little Jones Street to consider establishing an Episcopal church of their own in Greenwich Village. With the assistance of her son-in-law, Don Alonzo Cushman, who secured the services of the first rector, the first services were held in Obadiah Parker's schoolhouse on what is now 10th Street and then in the watch house of the state prison at Christopher and Washington Streets. And so the first church in the village was born. Over the years, as the population grew and the demographics of the city changed, the village has been and continues to be a haven for the broadest possible spectrum of society. Workers, the wealthy, families, bohemians, artists and outliers, and countless others who live at the margins. St. Luke's has answered the needs of our diverse community with a rich and responsive parish life that extends far beyond the pews. Outreach has always been a keystone of our practiced faith, as is the music that underscores both liturgy and laity. In coming episodes, you'll be hearing from our parishioners, our rector, Mother Carolyn Stacy, the clergy, our resident historian, Professor Don Girardi, our musical director, David Shuler, and members of the greater village, amongst a host of others, who are an integral part of the life of St. Luke's. Our goal is to bring to life the wonderful narratives behind, in, and outside these church walls. And what better way to start than with you, Father Bo? So I'd like to ask you, what is at the core of the Episcopalian faith that appeals, that comforts people so? Because I know in our experience, many have found their way to St. Luke's through a sense of loss or abandonment. Perhaps they've become disillusioned by their faith of origin or their life experience. So what is it about the ethos, and maybe St. Luke's in particular, that engages those people who feel on the fringes? Well, a broad principle of Anglicanism, uh, the Episcopal Church is the American outgrowth of the Church of England and part of the broader Anglican communion. Um, a singular principle of the Anglican faith is the via media, the mm -hmm. middle way. Um, 
I see that in 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 reality uh, lived out in the Episcopal Church in modern times. Uh, you'll see so many people coming to our church from either fundamental evangelicalism like myself or mm-hmm. from dogmatic Roman Catholicism. And our faith now in praxis is very much a middle way, a space that inhabits the grittiness of lived human life, the tension between hope and faith and uh, and our own daily lived experiences. Mm. Uh, I that messy see- space, yes, the gray exactly. space of humanity, exactly, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I see that uh, very much in the parishioners that come to St. Luke's and in the, in the people that come to... Um, 12-step meetings or community support meetings here on our block, in our school, uh, and in the people that we serve through our outreach ministries. Mm -hmm. And how did you come to embrace Episcopalianism and to find yourself at St. Luke's? Because it was a rocky journey where from from early life to um, a pastoral life to the life that you live now. Yeah, I was um, I was raised in a in a deeply devout evangelical household, um, starting at about the age of three or four. Uh, originally, I was I was raised by um, primarily by my grandmother, uh, a Japanese immigrant, uh, a devout Buddhist, and some of my earliest religious memories are waking up to the sound of her singing bowl and to the smell of her incense. Really? Yeah, as she would chant her morning sutras uh, every morning at her home altar, uh, and so I think I always had a sort of seed of interest in the mystic and in the divine planted from that really early age. Um, but I said, as I said, my primary religious expression um, from the ages of about three, four, uh, until I got to college was through a very fundamentalist, literalist, uh, Bible-based evangelicalism. Uh, and I, I really wanted to believe. It was something that I deeply desired to belong to. And even if I didn't know exactly my relationship to the dogma that I was taught as I grew up, uh, this idea that I belonged irrevocably to God and and that he loved me was something that um, meant a great deal to me mm-hmm. as, I, as I moved through uh, the course of my life. Uh, when I got to college, I began to experiment with, uh, with the Roman Catholic Church. And um, what drew me was that it was less based on someone telling you their opinion of the Bible and was held together through the tradition of the ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that we were saying prayers uh, that had been said for thousands of years, that we were doing actions and partake- partaking in rituals that uh, had been practiced for thousands of years and were being carried out by many other congregations in similar ways across the world. And so I felt held by something bigger than myself. Uh, was it a sense of community as well, even though you perhaps didn't know all of these people anywhere in the world, but you were part of a history and a tradition that um, in many ways is seen as being immutable. It continues to this day. Was that comforting for you? Yeah. The traditions? I, I, apart from the music and the, the human connection, I, I guess. I knew that I was part of something bigger than myself. Uh-huh. And I think that has always been a, a primary motivator for me to be part of something bigger than myself. Uh, When I got to college, uh, I became part of Air Force ROTC. I was a Russian major. I was um, pursuing a career in military intelligence. Uh, And when I came out uh, at the end of my sophomore year, um, all of these things that had been primary identifiers, those bigger things that I had been part of, 
fell away for a time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my understanding of my own identity had always sort of been the one burr in my saddle as I pursued being a good Republican, a Mm -hmm. good military member, a good Christian, a person of devout faith. That thing that always stuck and made me wonder, do I have a place in all of this? Mm-hmm. If they knew who I was, would they truly accept me? And so uh, in some ways that made me push harder to belong to these communities, to belong to these bigger things, um, because there was always that tension, that fear that I could lose it, mm-hmm. right? That um, it could be taken away from me. Which isn't comforting for someone who is um, who was raised with a notion of God from the Buddhist way to the evangelical way, um, is immersing themselves in patriarchal structures like mm. like you were. But that constant questioning is actually kind of eroding the sense of belonging, isn't it? Absolutely. The primary motivator there for belonging is rooted in fear, fear of loss, um, as opposed to embrace. Uh, And so it's always this sort of frantic self-reassurance that you're still part of the group, that you're still part of the club. Uh, I was, as I said, I was really devout um, growing up as an evangelical. I helped lead worship and I led Bible studies and I read my Bible every morning, an hour, uh, an hour every morning and an hour every night. And it was this sort of terrified uh, scrambling to make sure that I was doing whatever I could do to reinforce uh, my belonging, my membership in those communities uh, that I, I so desperately sought the approval of. And as I said, when I, when I came out, all of that really fell away. Um, family approval on my mother's side, church approval, uh, military approval. I resigned, as I said, under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, And so all of these things that had built up, that had been the sort of superstructure and framework that created who Bo Reynolds was at the time, in one sort of cataclysmic moment, fell off. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly found myself in that messy gray area, that uh, uncharted territory of figuring out where did I belong? Who was I? What did I actually believe? So it was a reinvention of self as well as uh, faith at that point. Reinvention, or maybe I was discovering it for ah, the first time. That's um, yeah. Instead of being told who I was or what I should believe in or what I should subscribe to, I suddenly had to think for myself. I had to explore that and figure out what was important to me, what my values were, where I wanted to belong, um, and not just belonging to what I was told was right. Mm-hmm. Having this objective value sort of applied to a community or or to an ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, and that pursuit, uh, that I, that journey of discovery was not an easy one. Um, I sort of wandered for over a year and a half, um, and it was really uncertain. And it wasn't until I met uh, the mother of a friend of mine in college, uh, who was an Epis- who is an Episcopal priest, excuse me, in uh, Central New York, up near Syracuse, that I started to find my way. Mm-hmm. What uh, did she in your first meeting with her? What did you take away from that? Mm. Yeah, so Mother Georgina and I got coffee on this uh, cloudy afternoon. Uh, I still remember the scene pretty vividly. And I showed up with all of these questions in my head. I had this list of reasons why the Bible said I couldn't be a Christian and gay, uh, why I didn't belong. And I showed up with this laundry list, um, almost expecting her to reaffirm everything that I had feared was true. 
And for the first time, she listened to me and she offered some thoughtful answers, but it was the unique experience of someone really uh, noticing that I was in pain, that recognizing that my faith had meant something deeply uh, in my, let me rephrase that. My faith had been really important to who mm -hmm. I was uh, and wanted to help me rediscover that as opposed to simply reaffirming a doctrine or a belief system uh, that wasn't in communication with real human life. Uh, and so she listened and she sat with me and she was incredibly empathetic. And at the very end of our uh, almost three hour uh, conversation, she gave me a hug and she said, you know, I think you'd be a really good Episcopalian. <laughs> uh, and I, I sort of took that with a grain of salt. Uh, it didn't feel like a conversion attempt, so I was mm -hmm. open to it. Um, and months later, I decided to, to give it a shot. And so I, I went to an Episcopal church in downtown Rochester, New York, uh, with a Jewish friend of mine. As, as, we, as, as you do. <laughs> as backup, yeah. right? Um, and I experienced that same tradition, uh, that same mystery and same beauty that had drawn me to the Roman Catholic Church. But I also experienced something else. I was held by a sense of belonging to something bigger in a different way. Because when I heard the church, the Episcopal church, say, we believe, I realized that it was the hope and the aspiration of the community, not a dogma mm -hmm. or a belief system being imposed top down onto me. And so I realized I had space to question and doubt and explore and discover, even in the midst of professions of belief. Uh, it was a sort of best of both worlds. There was uh, tangible ritual and tradition and history to cling to, uh, even as I made my way up this sort of insurmountable facade of religious discovery. Mm -hmm. So that was really, I, I guess for lack of a better term, or more appropriate term, is epiphanous. You, was mm -hmm. it epiphanous in that way, that you were sitting there in the... Uh, polar opposites came together to give you a sense of something, of a curiosity that you were willing to pursue mm. or felt drawn to pursue. I think the use of the word epiphany, mm. uh, illumination, revelation, mm -hmm. is very appropriate because for the first time I felt like I came to an expression of faith that was mine. It was not something that was inherited or imposed. It was something that I discovered and that I claimed. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of freedom and power uh, and belonging, a new type of belonging in that because I got to choose to be part of that community. Uh, there was no sort of set requirement that was a was a marker for keeping me in or out. There were mm -hmm. no shibboleths I had mm -hmm. to pass. Um, and it, th there was this just indescribable, indescribable sense of liberty in that. And it made me want to grow and move deeper into the community, the freedom to, to opt in or out, to move through it as I, as I needed to, uh, as I said, all the while having those, those sort of firm handholds to help, to mm -hmm. help guide me. Um, yeah. So I, I think a sense of religious, religious epiphany or discovery mm -hmm. is a, is a perfect way to describe that. So technically it's the same God, but it's a different version through the prism of this newfound faith for you. Because previously, as, as we've discussed, the uh, regimented God, the God of ritual of RC, didn't feel, well, perhaps you didn't feel like he was including you 
mm. as part of his flock. I think I felt that distance to God in evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, for all of the discussion around a personal relationship with Jesus that evangelicals uh, sort of harp on mm-hmm. about, it wasn't until I saw a priest lift the host over the altar in the Eucharist uh, for the first time that I knew what that phrase, personal relationship with Christ, meant. Because mm-hmm. here was a God who was with us mm-hmm. in tangible ways, in messy ways, in bread and wine that was consumed, in food for the journey of human life. Um, the thing that drove me away from Roman Catholicism was realizing that it was a, a community of people that had decided to sort of ring fence where God's love would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, that sort of externally reinforced belonging uh, as opposed to an invitation. Um, yeah. Sorry. When did you decide to enter the seminary mm. and to make this a vocation? Yeah, so I really uh, I really wandered after coming out, after leaving the military at ROTC. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but that hunger to still be part of something bigger than myself was still there. Um, and I had made really good friends with this old Jesuit priest at a local church uh, near uh, near where I went to school. And we would occasionally have coffee. And uh, being a Jesuit, uh, Father Jim was really good at knowing which uh, buttons to push theologically mm-hmm. to sort of show the flaws in where I was thinking or how I was uh, how I was believing or questioning. And so he'd sort of coolly sit back and push some buttons and watch me spin out. (laughs) And then I would leave in a frenzy and have to come back, you know, next week to put it all together again. Challenging, perhaps not comforting, I think. Yeah, but it it sort of felt like a a sensei. Oh, okay. You know, he he knew. A Jesuit Yoda. Yes, exactly. (laughs) He knew where I was going to end up and it had to be... um, he had to ask the hard questions to help get me there. Mm-hmm. And it was a valuable experience. And so uh, almost a year into that uh, relationship, he casually said something along the lines of, uh, you know, I could see you going to such and such seminary someday. And my head almost exploded. Uh, I said, what do you mean go to seminary? I like, never thought about being a priest. Um, I, I had this sort of idea that... Um, Priests came sort of in a kit, like uh-huh. fully formed, and, ah. and uh, with the costumes and the whole thing. Yeah, yeah they okay. just sort of and the movable arms. Yeah, <laughs> des- <laughs> exactly. Uh, descended from heaven, mm-hmm. sort of ready package, mm-hmm. and you just sort of put in the batteries and push them into a pulpit, and off they went. Right. Um, and the idea, as it struck me, of actually having a process of formation of growing into being a priest um, was something that struck me uh, totally out of left field. It was something I'd never contemplated before. Um, And so again, that was one of those moments where Jim was pressing a button or two and seeing me sort of do my usual uh, confusion dance. Mm -hmm. And, and then uh, I came back a few weeks later and said, so tell me, tell me more about this. What would that look like? What would that mean? How would it feel? Uh, and so he put me in touch with a few people, uh, actually in, in the Episcopal Church, and just said, have some conversations. Um, 
And it was through those conversations, through lots of solitary walks at night, um, through lots of confusion and doubt, that I started to discover what the word vocation Mm -hmm. means. And uh, vocation is not something that is outside of yourself that you're trying to attain. It's fully becoming what you're meant to be. Uh, The great Roman Catholic uh, monastic Thomas Merton has this line about the vocation of the tree is to be the most beautiful flourishing tree possible, right? And so all of us have a vocation and it's our job as Christians to discover that. Um, And so I, I started to feel this call to a vocation as a priest. Um, and so I, uh, I moved to Buffalo uh, to begin the process of discernment there, uh, and then followed that with a year in the Episcopal Service Corps in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, which is sort of like AmeriCorps, mm-hmm. uh, but for Episcopalians. Right. And this particular program uh, was in partnership with Yale Divinity School. And so what that looked like was nine people from across the U.S. living together in a single house, praying together, cooking together, going out to our different work sites throughout the course of the week. I worked in a K-8 inner city school in New Haven as an after-school coordinator, and then gathering back together, sometimes with faculty from the Divinity School, to talk about how this informed our faith, what lived theology out on the streets Uh looked like, how we could translate the words on a page into actual action. So it's a working, functioning theology. It's an incarnational theology. Uh Uh, And after after that year in New Haven, then I ended up at at Union Theological Seminary here in the city, uh, where I graduated uh, from in 2017. Mm -hmm. And I was just on the cusp of being ordained a deacon. I just graduated from seminary. And... uh, I had gotten a job as a hospital chaplain. Uh, I was doing a what they call a residency. It's a year-long program. And I wanted a parish family to belong to. And so I sent out a few emails to a few Episcopal churches in the city and said, hey, do you want a new deacon to work for you for free on the weekends? <laughs> and the first church to respond was St. Luke's. Uh, Mother Stacy, uh, our rector, sent me an email and said, well, how about you come on in for a conversation? And so we chatted and she said, you know, we'd love to have you here to learn our liturgy, to worship with us, but also to be present, uh, Mm -hmm. but also to be present at our outreach program, Art and Acceptance, uh, a drop-in center on Saturday evenings for homeless LGBT youth. And that point of connection Mm -hmm. was almost absurd to have been a young evangelical rejected by his church and family for being gay, to to leave that, to um, struggle to find my faith again, to end up at a church, to have an opportunity to be involved with and now lead an outreach ministry devoted to LGBT Mm -hmm. teens and Mm -hmm. young people, largely rejected by religious families. Um, I mean, you you can't write that. Yeah, it's 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 a cycle. It's yes. the completion of a circle in exactly. a cycle. Exactly. And you know, it's you know, it meant to be, or maybe you were guided. I I don't know. I mean, I think too with St. Luke's, the idea of inclusion mm. is a fundamental keystone to to the way of life, to uh, beyond the church, to the outreach, to and it, historically it's always been so. You know, disenfranchised people, orphans. Um, you know, way back when, when yellow fever was a plague, when uh, 
your children were dying and they had they were not baptized but St Luke's baptized them mm. there's that sense of being a working church for lack of a better a better term and addressing issues in the greater community as they arise has that been your experience well you you hit the nail on the head there in so many ways i think st luke's is a per- perfect synthesis or representation of my mm-hmm. own spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's involvement in the community, in the broader uh, city and, and its life. There's work. Uh, there's a history of reaching out to the marginalized, mm-hmm. in, in our case, particularly LGBT folks. Uh, there's a commitment to tradition and beauty and ritual. Uh, and it all happens in the beautiful but messy space mm-hmm. of this block. It just felt like such a perfect mirror to my own lived experience that I knew in some way that this spiritual community would become my spiritual home. Uh, and I felt sort of irrevocably drawn here, for a lack of a better term. And, and in many ways, uh, you, you talked about um, it things coming mm-hmm. full circle. In many ways, coming to St. Luke's as part of its clergy and part of its leadership feels like a step in my own personal redemption and healing, uh, as I said, to come back to a place where I can respond to the exact needs or similar needs that I experienced years ago, that I can help lead in the way that I was led and I can serve in the way that I was served. Um, yeah, it feels it feels divine. That's you know? Oh, that's wonderful. That's beautifully put. It is in, in many ways, both literally and as, as a form of lived experience. Mm. And I think that's the wonderful part of the life here. It's, it's, an, it's an extensive life. The block, as we call it, is, is physically, geographically very big. There is a school. There is uh, meeting rooms for people with for AA. There is um, our wonderful friends of Shelley who um, meet to discuss their transitions from person of origin to person of, of contemporary contemporary stance, there is that sense of inclusion and lack of judgment, which I think is uh, a remarkable achievement, particularly in the times in which we live, where there are, every time has unique challenges, but we have very unique challenges at, at this point in time, where we find that people are questioning, questioning self, questioning faith, questioning traditional notions of government, of uh, oversight, and wondering where the, I guess, internal comfort comes from mm. and where do we find it. And maybe the traditional version of a church and church life isn't always the solution, but a community-based orientation is inclusive and makes a little bit more sense of the messy space of life. Would that be true? I think it's best articulated in saying that, as as we talked about theology before, that mm-hmm. St. Luke's is an incarnational mm-hmm. community. We put our divine tradition in communication, direct contact mm-hmm. with people. And that's where the magic happens, I think. One of the sayings um, that we had, uh, it's, a, it's a quote from some venerable priest or other mm-hmm. that I can't remember in the Episcopal Service Corps was that the altar forms the ground yes. that we walk on, that everything is an extension of our worship and our tradition and our history. And we have a unique commitment, I think, as a parish, both here in New York and in the broader Episcopal Church of, of spreading that 
love, that acceptance, that acceptance of brokenness and messiness and confusion and doubt uh, out into our community and mm-hmm. to the people around us and to serve as a, as a sort of hub for the area. There are so many different groups that mm-hmm. you noted that make their way through St. Luke's. And I think that's its beauty. Uh, whether it's, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many memorial services I've done for folks who are not parishioners. Mm-hmm. They just loved our gardens. Mm-hmm. And this was a daily place for them, a sort of place of solace and comfort where they could come and read their newspaper and drink their coffee. And they wanted their life to be remembered and capped off here at St. Mm-hmm. Luke's. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's so beautiful mm-hmm. right? that we serve so many people in so many different ways. And we don't need to tell them our full religious story. Right. We don't need to have them on the pews in the pews on Sunday. Mm-hmm. We just need to be a, a body of service and love and grace. Uh, and I, I think that's uh I think that's something that St. Luke's does particularly well. It does, very, very much so. And it's visible, you can see it. Plus, we respond, I think, but particularly the clergy do, to the way people live. We have the blessing of the bikes and the blessing of the animals. So in the village, most people bicycle at some point or another, or you get a city bike. Not that you would bless that necessarily, I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe they need more blessing. Yeah, yeah, they possibly do, or new colorways. Um So we respond to that, which is a nuanced way, I think, of uh, answering people and saying, well, we understand how you live. You bicycle, let's bless your bike. You have an animal, you have a dog that you adore, a cat, a hamster, we'll bless that cat and that hamster because they're all part of our um, environment, of our living environment, our ecosystem, if you like. Yeah, there's a a deep commitment to our local community. Mm. Uh, that is really, really beautiful. And it's I think it's something that is going away as our senses of identity or political affiliation mm. or belonging get more globalized in this world. St. Luke's really feels rooted here in the village. And we've always said that our job is to tend our fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our fields is here. It's, mm. you know, it's this village. It's this funky little part of it New York. It is. And I mean, people have, have accused us as it's an accusation of it being a bubble. Mm. But, and that word has become pejorative in many ways, and I don't think it should be. Um, I like to think of it as a kind of an ecosystem, mm-hmm. of a sort of biosphere that is one of the last neighborhoods, really, that exists in Greater Manhattan, in the sense that everybody knows everybody. You try and walk down the street without, mm-hmm. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Um, and in some way, shape or form engages with each other, whether it's, uh, I mean, obviously the demographics have changed a lot, but we still have people who moved here in 1945 and are living in the same apartment. They're getting older. We as um, a, a church and as an institution, a community environment are responding to their needs. Um, I love, too, one of the first things as an archivist that I discovered, and it was tragic, but at the same time poignant and comforting, was um, the village has always been a hub for the gay community. Um, And again, you know, families who perhaps have rejected them or other religious communities that did. People found a home here. Mm. And that horrifying time when HIV AIDS was at its most devastating apex in the early 80s, heading towards the 90s, early 90s. 
and I found orders of service that I spread out on the on the carpet and you just saw this amazing horrifying increase in the amount of young men dying at a horrible horrible horribly horrible age prematurely but they had become part of the St Luke's community and the St Luke's clergy were amongst the only who would send them on their way with honour and grace. And I watched too as the community got involved as time went on where the programs were done by friends, adding poetry, adding photography. Um, and in a really real sense, as, as you all know, we um, supplied the what you know was we called the AIDS dinners or people living with AIDS. So every Saturday would come here and be fed and often cook together in a community environment thus extending lifespan in many ways and a sense of belonging where the rest of the world, through lack of understanding, didn't get the memo, for lack of a better term. And those things are so important. And I'm sorry, yeah. There's a um, there's a progressive nature to everything that you're highlighting too that mm. goes back to that point of permeability and responsiveness to mm -hmm. our ecosystem, right? It started with burials. Mm. It was, it was what was most needed at the time. Mm -hmm. And it moved to chaplaincy in the AIDS wards at St. Vincent's. And then it moved to the PLWA dinner. Mm -hmm. And now it's moved to art and acceptance. Mm -hmm. you know, we, uh, we, we try to be sensitive to the needs around us. And we're willing to adapt. Yeah. Uh, instead of saying, this program has been around for two decades and it is venerable and loved by our parishioners and, sh and it shall never go away, uh, we often talk about wanting to put ourselves out of business. Mm. Like, let's do our best to serve the need that's yeah. immediately around us until it's a need no longer. Exactly. And then let's find the next need. Yeah, yeah. And we have, as we, as we know, a lot of elderly now mm -hmm. who may not have families, may not have extended families or, or nuclear families close by. And... St. Luke's provides an environment for that. And we're starting a new um, dinner night for... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please yeah, yeah. talk about it. I mean, so yeah. we're really excited to um, to pilot what we're calling Mary's Table based yeah. off of the uh, statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary here on our grounds. Mm -hmm. um, I think a perfect sign of hospitality and grace. Uh, Mary's Table, a dinner, a dinner for seniors in the area. Uh, seniors and their friends in partnership with our school, with St. Luke's School. Uh, it should pilot in about March of 2020. Um, and we're going to start out with a monthly dinner and then see where the need takes us. Mm -hmm. But just creating a space where folks can come and get a great meal uh, cooked by the catering staff here and uh, have placemats decorated by the school children, maybe have some performances from our youth group or local local community groups, uh, just a space for people, again, to be and yeah. to breathe and to connect with one another and to... Not to feel isolated and yes. alone. Yes. As as often they are, sadly. To find tidy. a community. Yeah. 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 A place around the table, their mm. own personal seat. Yeah. So what do you think are some of the unique challenges and by definition opportunities that are presenting themselves in this day and age, in the age of social media? for example, uh, with youth who know everything because, you know, you're connected to the interwebs. Sorry, I think I know everything. I'm connected to the interwebs. How do you engage with a younger, a younger group who are tech savvy, who've grown up with it, who may not have had that kind of religious or faith-based orientation in their family life or in their school life? 
is that something that the church should actively seek to do or does one wait until they come to you? Well, I, I certainly don't think we can rely on a passive model mm. of response. Um, there's so much that you hit on there that is so accurate. Um, there's a growing distrust of institutions and institutional authority and what that means for our lives. Uh, there's a decreasing attention span, right? Uh, mm. Content is snackable now and attention spans are very, very brief and you need to keep people uh, engaged in many different ways. Um, and then there's uh, also a lot of harm that religious communities have done, institutional religious communities. And I think many folks are grappling with that mm -hmm. personally and then pursuing different forms of uh, religious expression. Uh, I have two Gen Z sisters, and mm. um, even though they were raised in a deeply Christian household, as I talked about earlier, yeah. uh, they're really into astrology and into tarot and crystals uh -huh. and these things that feel non-threatening, uh, but grant them a sense of control and meaning to the universe around them. And I think that's essential because that spiritual need hasn't gone away. Yeah. Right? Uh, that desire to understand who am I, uh, what is my place in the world, what is the meaning of me being on this tiny little rock, mm -hmm. uh, and, and what do I do about that? That hasn't gone. So the needs not uh, hasn't, hasn't disappeared with time or hasn't aged out. Mm -hmm. I think the church needs to be uh, responsive in, in how we go about serving that need. And we need to be open to new ways of ministering to folks. So Mother Gina Gore, our mm -hmm. associate for children, youth, and families, has started Supper Chapel on Friday nights once a month. And that's a really easy, uh, low-access service mm -hmm. that is intergenerational. It's comfortable with being messy and mm -hmm. having mistakes. It strives to be children-led and served. Uh, it has a, a meal component to it, so there's a strong focus on community building. And so it relies and taps into the strength of our tradition but is willing to manifest that in a, di in a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so much has been made also of the expanse of the megachurch in America, but what you see in megachurches is usually a five-year cycle of participation and that people mainly go to megachurches to be part of the smaller group, but generally phase out within about a five-year lifespan. Uh, Why I is that, do you think? I think... Uh, it's church, it's branding, it's religious right. branding. Right. I mean, you can you can sell marketing for so long, but I to be a bit blunt about it, and I apologize, but if, if you don't have the content there, mm -hmm. if um, if your primary draw is your packaging, I think people are going to start to see beyond that. People are savvy consumers. Mm -hmm. We're getting advertised to um, at every turn in our life, whether we turn on our phone or we look out the window. Uh, there's an ad there. And so people don't want religion to be sold to them. They want something real. And so you you actually see this trend, strikingly, uh, of Anglo-Catholic parishes mm -hmm. growing um, or experiencing younger parishioners seek, or seeking them out, new non-churchgoers even, or people coming from either a dogmatic Roman Catholic or right. evangelical background. And I think that's because in some way, we offer an authentic spirituality that is praying for the sake of prayer, that we move through a space with incense and chanting yeah. and light, and our God is a God of tangibles, 
grace happens in water and in oil and bread and wine. Um, there's a sense of ritual. There's a sense of set-apartedness. We're not trying to make our faith more like modern society. We're trying to offer an experience of transcendence. And if That is based in history, but is relatable, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, St. Luke's has a, its own really unique liturgical history. After the fire, uh, the most recent fire, uh, we rebuilt the parish in a way that would be responsive to the new prayer book, to responsive to the um, liturgical reforms of Vatican II. And so we, uh, we sort of have a, a perfect middle ground of Anglo-Catholic history and ritual, but in a, in a modern mm. context. We're not trying to emulate a historical church. We're trying to be the church here and now, but in ways that are authentic to us. And people respond to authenticity. Mm -hmm. They respond when they see a body of people who are compelled by a message and a history and by grace, whether they can fully define it. And sometimes it's the way the sunlight comes through all that smoke on yeah. a Sunday morning. Sometimes it's the music of the choir. Sometimes it's a sermon. Uh, but people respond to that. Mm. It's true. It's, it's the combination of all those things. Each and every one is authentic within. And it's not a lot of pointing and name-calling and uh, shibboleths, as you say, to, to make people feel badly about themselves. Pardon me. That's not the goal. And I think people don't have that, for the most part, that tolerance mm -hmm. of being judged right. anymore from on high, if you like. Um, but they do need guidance. Everyone needs guidance. You did, I did. We all do. That's the nature of being human, that messy space of being human. I think, yeah, I, I think uh, we, we judge ourselves and each other enough. Um, certainly there is accountability for our actions as people and we are accountable to one another and to our communities but I think that gets addressed through that cycle mm. of redemption that mm -hmm. I was talking about. I think grace is honest and it's gritty and it's there with us in the really miserable times and with us in the beautiful times. And, and so I think our job as a church is to reaffirm that grace is always present mm -hmm. and it's present uh, in the messy and, uh, you know, sometimes dreadful streets of Manhattan. Mm. Um, it's present in our beautiful gardens and it's, it's striving to see that. It's striving to see it in our homeless neighbor. It's striving to see it in a, in a beautifully restored sanctuary mm. it's, and it's striving to see it everywhere in between in our daily life and realize that everything in our lives is a, is a way in, into, into God's heart. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think we try to emulate that as you were saying that accessibility uh, through our work, on the block. There are so many ways in that we allow people to be part of our community here at St. Luke's that we acknowledge that they're planted in our fields. Um, as I said, whether we count them on the parishioner roles or not. Mm. They're and still I, part of the broader community. They're, they're, yeah. They're and they're part, in the fields. They're in our fields and they're part of our family. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really amazing thing. Thank you so much thank you. for talking. It's always a pleasure to, to talk with you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next time. If you'd like some more information about St. Luke in the Field and our work, please visit our website, stlukeinthefields.org, or we also have an Instagram account. Did you know that? I discovered that today. Oh, did you? Yeah. It's called at St. Luke in the Field. Surprise. 
Thank you so much. And we look forward to speaking with you guys next time. Bye-bye. The music you've been listening to in today's podcast is taken from Giovanni Pierluigi da Palestrina's Missa Tu Es Petrus, performed by the Choir of St. Luke in the Fields, led by musical director David Schuler, and recorded live in January of 2017 at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in New York. This CD and others like it are available for purchase from stlukeinthefields.store. In the Field is produced by the Church of St. Luke in the Fields and engineered by Michael Talbot in New York's West Village. <laughs>